Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and as we come to that word now, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher and guide to lead us into all truth for Jesus' sake. Amen. In the confirmation service, all the prayers were focused around the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want to focus on tonight as we, uh, as we look at God's word together. Uh, in a sense, to answer the question that's prompted by our Old Testament reading uh, from Ezekiel 36, what happens when God puts a new spirit in us? Uh, to answer that question, I'm not going to look at Ezekiel. I'm actually going to look at Romans chapter 8. Uh, and really the middle part from verses 5 through 17. But let me back up a bit. Uh, let me remind you, the previous chapters of the book of Romans have given a pretty brutal diagnosis of the human condition. There's a problem between us and God, and the problem is all on our side. We are creatures who've turned their back on their creators. creator. We are sinners who have fallen short of God's righteous standards. We are spiritually dead towards him. Now, the good news of the book of Romans is that God hasn't left us in this state. Uh, What God has done for us can be summed up in two simple phrases. You heard both of them in the, the baptismal promises, forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Romans 3 through 7 explains the forgiveness of sins part of that equation. Uh, We're not going to cover that in any detail tonight, although you do get the almost one-sentence summary in verse 3. It is because God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. That's how God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law are met in us. Because Jesus, in, in Jesus' sin was condemned, there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. That, that's my little summary of the first three or four verses. Uh, in theologian speak, what happens when uh, God forgives our sin is that we are justified. As my grandmother taught me when I was very young, that means it's just as if I'd never sinned. It's a change in status. It's flipping the switch from condemned to forgiven. Now, important and as absolutely foundational as that, that, that change of status is, it's only half the story. The other half is that God gives us his Holy Spirit So to say it again, forgiveness of sins changes our status before God, but the gift of the Spirit is changing our state with God. Romans 8 tells us that God has given us the gift of his Holy Spirit to do three things, to make us alive to God, to enable us to live for God, and to connect us with God. And if it helps you to have a three-point sermon outline, there it is. Uh, Alive to God, verses 5 to 9. Live for God, verses 10 to 14. And connect with God, verses 15 to 17. Sorry, I didn't get that to the office in time. Uh, Firstly then, what does it mean to say that the Spirit makes us alive to God? If you have a look at verses 5 to 9, you see that Paul has got this long-running contrast between two different modes of living. He's contrasting being in the spirit, in the realm of the spirit, or in the realm of the flesh. Uh, Flesh 
that doesn't really refer to kind of my material um, body. It's talking about a nature that is opposed to God and his will. In, in some other translations, the earlier translation of the NIV, it translated it as the sinful nature. Paul describes what it's like to be in the flesh from three perspectives. Uh, I'll give you a literal translation in each case just to help capture what Paul is getting at. In verse 4, he says that people walk in the flesh, or as the NIV puts it, they live according to the flesh. So that first perspective is talking about our, our behaviours, our actions, how, how, what the, the things that we do. The second perspective is verse 5, people think according to the flesh, or as the NIV translates it, have their minds set on what the flesh desires. So people's thinking, their mindset is dominated by a way of thinking that it doesn't want God in the picture, wants to do its own thing. And then the final perspective is verse 8, literally being in the flesh, or as the NIV puts it, in the realm of the flesh. Paul's point is that for the person who's not a Christian, their actions and their thoughts and really the whole essence of their being is against God. It's, it, it doesn't want to submit to God's law. It, it's um, actually offensive to God when we're in the flesh. It says, verse 7, the mind is hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law. We simply cannot please God when we are in the flesh. And here's the thing, uh, no amount of, uh, of good intentions on our part, no amount of personal effort is ever going to turn that around because the whole problem is we're heading in the wrong direction. Our, our very nature has got its back turned towards God and doesn't want to submit to his law. And so coming from that, that position of um, animosity towards God, there's nothing we can do to make it right. But when a person becomes a Christian, God puts his spirit in us so that we are no longer in the flesh. Instead, verse 4, we walk in the spirit. Verse 5, we think according to the spirit. Verse 9, the very essence of the Christian life is in the spirit. God's put his own spirit in us, uh, which is also described as the spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit, in order to bring us from death to life. Uh, notice how Paul describes the spirit in verse 11, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. The spirit is connected with resurrection. If you want to distinguish between the death and resurrection of Jesus, you could say that the death of Jesus enables the forgiveness of our sins and the resurrection of Jesus brings the gift of the spirit. It's probably overly neat and theologically those things blur together. But if it helps you to think about the death and resurrection of Jesus, connecting it with forgiveness of sins, gift of the Holy Spirit, that might be helpful. And again, just in passing, notice that the same spirit is the spirit of God, verse 9, the spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul doesn't use the word Trinity, but it, this and other verses like it is where we actually get the idea, the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the point is uh, that here we are seeing all of God, Father, Son and Spirit, come and dwell in us when a person becomes a Christian. Don't miss the critical point. This is true for every single Christian. 
Paul says at the end of verse 9, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. You can't be part of the new realm of the spirit unless you have been given life by the spirit. Jesus says a very similar thing in John chapter 3. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he or she is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. That is true for each of our confirmees. They have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. God has put his spirit in them, and that spirit has made them alive to God. Can I ask you that question? Is that true for you? Have you received the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of of the spirit? Has God given you spiritual birth, that you you were dead towards him, but he's made you alive? And and if you're not sure, how how can you know? Or or to put the question another way, what does it look like when somebody is walking in the spirit, thinking according to the spirit, being in the spirit? Well, the answer to that question is in verses 10 to 14, which is the second work of the Spirit. The Spirit enables us to live for God. Now, as we begin, let me be very clear about what that doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is that the moment that a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit enables you to live in perfect obedience for the rest of your life. Now, I can testify from my own experience that that wasn't the case, and I suspect that pretty much everybody here can say the same thing, but I'm not just relying on the testimony of our own experience. It's actually what Paul is saying here. In verse 10, he says that even though Christ is in you, your body is still subject to death because of sin. Even though the Spirit has made us alive to God, we are still bound up in this disordered creation, including the disorder that's part of us. Yes, God has begun a work of transformation, but it's not complete and it won't be complete until, verse 11, until the one who raised Jesus from the dead gives life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So right now our condition is we're still stuck in these mortal bodies, which it means that they're subject to death, but more than that, it actually means they're still subject to the tug of our old Uh, fleshy nature. There's still a part of me, the old Michael, that used to live in hostility to God and struggling with that nature is the ongoing reality of the Christian life. Even though we have been made alive by the Spirit, that, uh, that, that process of transformation is exactly that a work in progress. Again, to our confirmees, uh, God is working in you to transform your actions and your thoughts and the very mode of your being, but it's going to be an ongoing struggle. Before a person becomes a Christian, uh, uh, no, let me put it the other way around. It's only when I became a Christian that I realised how hard it was to live for God. So before I'm a Christian, just going your own way kind of goes com- comes naturally. It's a little bit like swimming with, with the current in a strong stream. When I'm swimming with the current, I think I am a fantastic swimmer because I just kind of loop one arm over the top and I'm, I'm scooting along. But of course, I'm not actually doing any work at all. It's just the current is carrying me. It's only when I turn the other way and I swim against the current that I actually realise how hard it is and... How, how terrible a swimmer that I am. 
It's a bit like that when you become a Christian. When you become a Christian, God orients the direction of our life, but actually now we're swimming against the current of our world. And it's only when you become a Christian that you actually experience that real, genuine struggle against sin. Paul says in verse 12 that that's what we need to do. Uh, because God has broken that old, uh, the hold of the old nature o- over me, I'm no longer obliged to live by the flesh. He's done that so that I'd be able to put to death the misdeeds of the body. In other words, to live a different way, not to live that old, mortal, fleshy way. But note carefully what Paul says. It's not just me gritting my teeth and swimming really hard against the current. It's actually by the spirit that we put to death the misdeeds of the body. It's it's not actually me and my ability. It's actually the work of God's spirit in us. God is enabling us to live for him. Paul goes on to put the same metaphor in a positive way by saying that the ongoing ongoing Christian life should be led by the spirit. Uh, Sometimes Christians use the phrase led by the Spirit to refer to some kind of guidance, like the Lord is leading me to become a missionary in Tibet or the Lord is leading me to study geography or something like that. Um, Now, whether or not that's true, that's not what Paul means here when he's talking about being led by the Spirit. In this context, being led by the Spirit is about moral transformation. It's, It's not about guidance. Uh, Or to put it another way, the Holy Spirit is not leading you into geography. He is leading you into godliness. The ongoing Christian life is one of keeping in step with the Spirit, uh, recognising that the Spirit is, is leading us in a particular direction and then following him so that more and more we walk and think and be like Christ. That's the second thing that the Spirit does. So the Spirit makes us alive to God, changes us from dead to alive. The Spirit enables us to live for God so that we actually walk and think and and, and act the way that God wants us to live. But thirdly and most importantly, and I think I've saved the best to last, Paul says in verses 15 to 17 that the Holy Spirit connects us with God. It's by the Spirit that we are adopted into God's family. Paul says in verse 14 that all who are led by the Spirit are sons, sons and daughters of God. When we turn to Christ, God adopts us into his family and his Spirit is both a sign and a seal of that adoption. An adoption in the ancient world conferred all the rights and privileges of natural-born children. An adopted child was in no way inferior. Paul makes this incredible statement in verse 17 that as God's adopted children, we are, quote, heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ who will one day share in his glory. To put it another way, Christ is our big brother and we've been elevated to be his brothers and sisters who will share in all the blessings that he has won for us. And this comes to us through the Spirit. Verse 15, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. But more than just being a sign and seal of our adoption, in other words, God's way of stamping us and saying, this one belongs to me, this one's part of the family, more than just being a sign of it, it, 
the Holy Spirit actually enables us to function as part of God's family by connecting us with God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. A key work of the Spirit is to assure you that you are God's children. How can you be sure that you have the Spirit? How can you be sure of your adoption? It's only by the Spirit that a person can call God Father. Um, Paul says, verse 15, that it's by the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is a particularly intimate form of address for, for Dad. The sure sign that you have the Spirit is that you know God is your Father. That's actually the chief proof of the work of the Spirit in you. Not, not the works of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit, not the fruit of the Spirit, but the very fact that you know deep down in your heart that God is your loving Heavenly Father. That's the work of the Spirit in you. As Paul says in verse 15, you haven't received a Spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. No. It doesn't make you think that God is an angry judge who is waiting to throw the book at you. No, it's by the Spirit that you know that God is a loving Father who can't wait to throw his arms around you. A loving Father to whom you are most precious, most loved, that you cannot do anything to make him love you more than he already does. That is the work of the Spirit in you. What Paul says in Romans chapter 8 about the Spirit, I think, transforms the way that we live. Romans 8 tells us the good news that God has given us his Spirit to make us alive to him from death to life, to lead a life for God, led by the Spirit, and to connect us with God, our Heavenly Father, transformed from fearful slaves into loving children. How are we living the Christian life then? Are we living as slaves to fear, slaves to the old way, or are we walking in joyful obedience to our loving Heavenly Father? It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to do this. Uh, as I said, the confirmation service was all about our confirmees, but I pray that for all of us that will be the thing that we take away from today is the reminder from God's word about the work of his spirit in our lives to make us alive to him, enable us to live for him, and to connect us with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you are the loving Heavenly Father who through uh, the Lord Jesus has forgiven us our sins and given us the gift of your Spirit. Father, so work in us by your Spirit that we live for you, live to you and connect with you in Jesus' name. Amen.